greetings and welcome to episode 32 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is Indiana Jones in China, or essentially the exodus of art and antiquities from China in the modern era. Okay, you can also think of this as the lost treasures of China, is oftentimes how I like to talk about this topic. And before we, be, we sort of begin here, I need to lay out some broad conceptual frameworks for you so that we can properly understand and put into context what actually happens during the late 19th and the 20th century. Because as most of you are probably well aware, this is a very sore spot. This is a very controversial issue that can easily inflame passions on all sides um, today, because as you all know, there is a heck of a lot of Chinese art uh, that is not within the current boundaries of the Chinese state. Okay, either the mainland or Taiwan. It's it's really far away on the other side of the world, and this was a fate that befell many art and antiquities in other non-Western parts of the world during the 19th and 20th centuries. Okay, um, so this is an issue that is in the news. You'll often see articles and whatnot. Uh, many Chinese billionaires today are uh, very um, uh, vigorous in their efforts to try to buy back at public auction some of these antiquities that they feel, uh, often rightly, were taken in military looting campaigns or by other means that they think were illegitimate. Um, and sometimes there's even these James Bonds type repelling into some Swedish museum and simply taking things. Uh, at night, um, you know, essentially stealing them back, uh, right, um, and taking them back to China. Um, so obviously, this is an issue that we have to tread lightly and make sure that we understand, okay, that we understand the original historical context, and then you can judge for yourself whether or not you think, um, so, you know, such and such an artifact uh, belongs in China, should go back, or if it was legitimately acquired, or whatnot, Okay, so let's begin with the biggest bird's eye perspective that we can begin with, which is basically the observation that the people who have owned art, works of art, okay, the owners of art, have been collecting, trading, and losing their artwork uh, for thousands of years. Whether we're talking about China, Europe, Africa, Mesoamerica, wherever. Okay, this has been going on for thousands, as long as there has been art that wealthy and powerful elites said, hey, I want that in my possession, uh, then as long as that's been going on, they have been losing those things as well. Okay, so from a really broad perspective, the weird thing about today's topic isn't necessarily that China ended up losing so many of its treasures in the modern era. The weird thing is, one that we actually regard them as, quote-unquote, China's treasures in a national collective sense, as something that belongs to every single person in the Chinese nation. Somehow it has something to do with their identity. Okay? Um, that is strange. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm saying that historically it's a novel idea that didn't previously exist if you go back three, 400 years ago, whether in Europe or in China. Okay, so that's the first odd thing that we have to understand the evolution of. At what point were these treasures actually regarded as China's treasures and not the private property of individual elites who would have regarded themselves in cosmopolitan, not necessarily national terms, as their chief cultural identity? Okay, and then two, the other thing that's a little strange is that uh, what happens in the modern era is that China's treasures... Okay, 
um, are not just lost to other East Asian elites or inner Asian elites. Okay? Because that's been going on for a really, really long time. Okay? The weird thing is that they're going to be lost to people who come from the other side of the globe, and these people will take these things back to their homes on the other side of the globe. Okay? And then what's also weird is that they're going to put them into these newfangled institutions called museums, in which they say, oh, this is permanent now. <laughs> it's never going to leave the shelf or the glass cabinet within which it is being displayed. Whereas in the old days, um, maybe you might have a distant nomadic elite who would take uh, antiquities and artwork in China and then take them a couple hundred miles or something like that, or maybe even a thousand miles, unlikely, but let's just say they did for the sake of argument. Um, but they wouldn't put it in a museum, because there is no museums then. Uh, but they wouldn't put it in an institution that said, oh, this is permanent. Its natural life cycle of circulating around in human networks is over. Okay, that's the other weird part. All right. First, that it's regarded as China's treasures, not individual private property, as art had always been regarded for for a very long time, unless the few cases you're talking about public devotional religious art. Um, that's sort of a special case. Um, and then two, that these, this art was lost to Europeans and Americans who would not ever give it back. Under no circumstances are you taking this back from us. It's permanent because it represents to, something to us in a new political terms. That's very new. That's very novel. Okay. Because emperors and Confucian elites and landlords and wealthy people had uh, a lot of art for thousands of years in China. And they all lost it sooner or later. Whether through warfare, okay, whether through destruction, whether through uh, you inherit something and then your family falls on hard economic times and then you sell the artwork that you have, or whether you gave it away as a gift, whatever. The difference was, though, is that when you did this prior to the 19th century, it would not be taken 10,000 miles away. <laughs> the new owner would be nearby, okay? Most of the time, they'd be within 10, 50, 100 miles of you, okay? And in theory, you could probably go see that antiquity that you gave away or sold away or gifted away or whatever if you wanted to. Um, at the most extreme uh, scenario in the old days, maybe you traded it to a Mongol elite or a Japanese elite or a Korean elite, and it's going to go somewhat farther. But still, it's within East Asia. It's a regional exchange. Okay? What's new is that it's not going to be regional anymore. It's going to be global. And in that environment, China is going to lose a lot. All right, now, let's get... let's. Uh, come down from our rarefied air that the bird's eye perspective forces us to breathe, and let's talk about some details. Namely, when, where, and how did Western collectors begin to obtain Chinese art? Okay, because in the 20th century, it's going to be a mass exodus. For the first 50 years of the 20th century, there's going to be a mass exodus, which we're going to talk about in a minute, of Chinese art, or art that is found within the soil of China, or in collections in China that leaves the country and never comes back. All right. Where did this Western interest in Chinese art come from? Because we know the Westerners themselves are relatively newcomers to the region. They couldn't possibly have had a pre-existing infatuation or appreciation of the arts of East Asia, especially since so many of the early people who came to East Asia from the West were merchants. Okay, uh, Glorified pirates who are engaging in commercial transactions selling opium and drugs and whatnot. Most of these people are not artistic connoisseurs. 
Okay, so when does it happen? All right, well, first, the earliest really appreciation of something that we can say, oh, this is art and it's associated with China, is the infatuation in European circles with what we call chinoiserie. It's a French word. All right, you probably heard this word before. Chinoiserie is uh, a, a type of mo a artistic motif, a decoration that is usually applied, or it was originally applied to porcelain, ch porcelain being one of China's most famous exports. Uh, chinoiserie would be Chinese motifs that were specifically designed to cater to the taste of really distant, faraway peoples um, and, you know, pander to their ideas about this exotic realm really, really far away. All right, that's chinoiserie. The Europeans aren't the only ones to be buying porcelain in various Indian ports uh, that originates in China that is geared specifically for that market. Okay, but that is going to be one of the first places, it's going to be the first place, that European elites, and we're talking about elites here because poor, massive commoners aren't buying art. All right, art is a luxury that only the wealthy and powerful can afford. All right. Um, and if you've ever gone to Europe and visited one of these castles or royal palaces or whatnot, you've seen chinoiserie. Okay. You've seen both the actual porcelain that it's painted upon. And when you look at it, if you know nothing about China, you'll probably look at it and go, oh, wow, that's China. Okay. If you know something about China, you're probably looking at chinoiserie and you cringe a little bit. You're like, eee, that's what they thought China looked like and the Chinese people looked like. Um, it's a little weird if you actually know something about China and you're familiar with it. But if you know nothing about China, which most Europeans knew nothing about China, all right, we're talking 18th century, 19th century. Okay. And they thought, oh, this is authentically a representation of China and what the Chinese people look like and what their lands and palaces look like. And they liked to collect this stuff. It was in vogue. All right, these are cosmopolitan European princes and whatnot. They have more money than they know what to do with, and they want to show off their taste in all the art of the world, and chinoiserie is one way that they can do that. Now, it wasn't just on porcelain. It was also on buildings and murals and paintings. Uh, again, if you go to one of these European palaces, I've done several of these. Just a few years ago, I went to Stockholm, and I was visiting uh, the, the, the major Stockholm palace, whatever that is. Um, and not only do they have chinoiserie motifs in the uh, objects, the vases and the porcelain that they eat off of, um, they also had on the grounds of the palace, they had a whole chinoiserie pavilion. They would call it like the Chinese pavilion. You walk out into the forest and they have this pavilion and the whole thing is decorated inside in what they imagined at the time were Chinese motifs, authentic Chinese motifs. And of course, today we look at it and we kind of smile and this is amusing because we think this is, this is very, very far away from what China's actually like or the Chinese people are like. But regardless, at the time, that's what they enjoyed. And then you invite your other royal friends over and you all hang out in the Chinese pavilion and you act like you're indulging a little bit of Chinese culture and everyone has a good time. Okay? Um, relatively harmless fun, if you think about it, Okay. Even though today we might look at it and go, oh, cultural appropriation. <laughs> uh, don't get me started on cultural appropriation. That's just another word for cultural exchange. And I got news for you. It's been going on since the dawn of time. All right. Um, now, the Chinese were complicit in chinoiserie. All right. They may not have, the people who were actually making the, the porcelain that had chinoiserie motifs, uh, they may not have come face to face with the Europeans themselves, but through several intermediaries, um, the Jingdezhen kilns in southern China that created the best porcelain for export, uh, they actively catered to what they thought, oh, this is what the Europeans think we look like, and this is what they want us to look like, and this is what they want to buy. Um, and so they were producing this stuff as well. All right. So, chinoiserie. That's your earliest Western appreciation, uh, coveting, saying, oh, this is nice, and it has something to do with arts in China.
something to do with it, okay? Very loosely. All right. Now, when do the Europeans gain a little more accurate knowledge of what the Chinese themselves appreciate and collect? Because that's very different than chinoiserie. There's no self-respecting Confucian elite. You're not going to find chinoiserie in their home, all right? Uh, Definitely not. Uh, So when do they find out what the Chinese like to collect? What do the Chinese like to collect? They like to collect things that are inscribed with Chinese characters, stone steelies, they like jade, they like scrolls with calligraphy, okay, these sorts of things, right, things that will give some substance to the idea that you are a cultivated, educated Confucian gentleman who values ancient text and has a a habit, a penchant for indulging in a little bit of amateur historical analysis, So usually, Chinese characters are involved somewhere in the Chinese art that is valued by indigenous elites, okay? Even a Chinese painting, if you look at Chinese paintings, they have words and seals all over it. If this was a European painting, you'd say it's graffiti and ugly and whatnot, and you got to get that stuff out of there. That was very common, and that was seen as totally fine in the Chinese context. You have a painting of a horse, and then you have 25 people who have added what are known as colophones or commentaries, then they, they, they take a seal with highly stylized version of the Chinese characters of their name, dip it in red ink, and then put the seal all over the painting. This is seen as adding to the aesthetic allure of the painting, not destroying it. Okay, So that world is very, very different, what the Chinese are collecting. They like bronzes too. They like these big bronze cauldrons and ritual vessels that date back to the Zhou dynasty or sometime in the first millennium BC. All right, Europeans aren't touching any of this stuff yet. When do they first start touching it? 1860 and then again in, in uh, 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 sorry, 1860 and then again in 1901. All right, what I'm referring to here, I'm referring to the, sac- the two military looting operations. All right, and these are the things that today, oftentimes, uh, everyone can be in agreement that these are morally reprehensible things. And whenever antiquities and artwork is uh, identified in a museum or at a public auction, and someone can actually definitively say, you know what, this came from one of those military looting operations in 1860 or 1901, um, then oftentimes all parties will agree to uh, give it back um, to a Chinese collector or a Chinese museum and send it back to China. These instances are fairly rare and few and far between, but nonetheless, that is, um, an interesting, um, uh, feature of these things that were taken in 1860 and 18, uh, 1901. Now, if you've been paying attention in these, uh, podcasts, obviously, you know, 1860, Second Opium War, and the decision, uh, to, you know, from the French and the British commanders who were involved in this war to say, we need to punish the emperor. Uh, how do we punish the emperor without punishing the Chinese people who played no part in the emperor's perfidy? Well, we're going to go to his summer, his summer palace playground in the northwestern quadrant of Beijing, now known as the old summer palace, and we're going to sack it. We're going to burn it to the ground. And in the midst of burning this thing to the ground, they also took a lot of the artwork that was in the buildings and attached to the buildings and the bridges and all this sort of stuff in the old summer palace. Okay, and this actually ends up being one of the first times that Europeans get a close, up-close look at, hey, this is what the Chinese regard as art, not chinoiserie. They like this stuff. These are the motifs, the type of animals that they put into statues. Okay, Um, and so Europeans now, they acquired it by military force, but finally, uh, in the 1860s, there's some uh, European elites who are saying, this is pretty interesting. This is pretty interesting, the sort of art that the Chinese like. And then that was repeated again in 1901 during what? That's right, the Boxer War. The Western and Japanese invasion of Beijing and the Forbidden City. Not the Summer Palace this time, they're going even closer to the heart. Uh, The Forbidden City, 
in retaliation for uh, Empress Dowager Cixi uh, supporting the boxer and uh, boxers and declaring war and laying siege to the Western Legations, the Embassy District. All right, this time they loot the Forbidden City, and the soldiers then obviously take that stuff, um, and they hold public auctions afterwards. And they say, oh, these public auctions are to pay for the cost of war, um, and the Chinese, obviously, by their actions, uh, have given up claim to this stuff, and this is totally legitimate. Um, at the time, there was even some criticism within European circles saying, you know what, this is really morally uh, dubious, what you guys have done, going into the Forbidden City and taking this stuff and then selling it. Uh, regardless, the end result is that definitely by 1901, the European art community, the art collector community, um, and the American community is now very aware of what the Chinese value as art, and they're starting to like it themselves. They're starting to get a taste for this stuff themselves. We need to have Chinese collections, okay, of Chinese art. And this is new. European museums didn't have a section on East Asia, and now they're starting to get one. Yes, it came from looted goods during a military campaign, but they're finally starting to get up close and personal with what the Chinese value, uh, not just what Europeans value. Okay, obviously these aren't sustainable, and even as I said, even uh, many people in Western circles back home uh, were very critical of uh, the military looting operations. All right, now that said, when the other route that the Europeans and Americans were starting to understand you know, this is what the Chinese collect. A lot of it actually came not just from military looting operations, it came via Japan. Because the Westerners had sort of uh, weaseled their way into the Japanese court uh, much earlier than they did in China. Remember, in China, you have uh, Confucian elites, Qing elites, who are for a very long time resisting the idea that the Westerners are equal to us. Okay, in Japan, that occurs fairly soon after the 1868 Meiji Restoration. They're saying, you know what, we need to westernize at full, at, at, at full speed. Um, and they had lots of close, intimate rea uh, interactions and relationships with Westerners at that time period. And uh, the West actually then came to appreciate and want to collect Japanese art before Chinese art. And then through their collection of Japanese art, they would then start to see the sort of Chinese art that the Japanese collected, Right. Um, and so the first East Asian art sections of, you know, like the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and these sort of places, uh, they probably would have been filled with Japanese stuff. And then gradually, they would have been filled up with stuff that came from the 1860 and 1901 military looting operations, and then Chinese stuff purchased or gifted by Japanese elites who had then in, uh, in turn themselves also bought Japanese, uh, Chinese art themselves. Okay. Uh, but prior to this period, prior to the first decade of the 20th century, it was actually quite difficult for Westerners, even if they wanted to collect what the Chinese Confucian elites themselves collected, outside of a military looting operation and outside of Japanese intermediaries, it was very, very tough in the late Qing era to do that in the heartland of China. Okay, because the, 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 the Chinese elites, the Confucian elites, whether they're Manchus, Mongols, or Han, they all had been educated to believe that they have cultural continuity with the distant past. I call this the perception of cultural continuity because if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that it's a perception. It's not a reality. There's tons of cultural change and rupture, discontinuity in Chinese history as well. You know I have very strong views on this, right? Um, but that doesn't matter. The perception Okay, which has been cultivated in their brains throughout their entire period of education, 
is that if any if something has Chinese characters on it, or if it's mentioned in the Chinese histories, then it's a part of the Huaxia cultural civilization, the cultural community, and therefore it's fair game for collecting. And I'll collect it, whether it was written by a Tangut elite, a Mongol elite, uh, whoever. It's part of our cultural continuity, even if they did practice human sacrifice at the time of the Oracle Bones, <laughs> right? Um, and so these guys were interested. Chinese elites, Confucian elites, were interested in their own stuff. They had money. They had wealth. Um, and they appreciated it far more than the Westerners did because they understood it. They were connoisseurs. They could read all this stuff. And they valued it highly. And they weren't just about to sit down and bring out their collection for a Westerner, uh, a crude barbarian, you know, in the 1860s and 70s who knows nothing about our history, nothing about our art, and I'm going to sell him one of my most treasured possessions. I don't need the money. Why would I do this? Okay, you only exchange your, your private wealth, as it's exemplified in art, with other worthy Confucian gentlemen. Japanese elites, Chinese elites, but not with this Western merchant. Why would I do that? Okay, so it's hard for Westerners to break into the Chinese market. And most of the art is not on public display. It's not even on private display. You get invited to go into a Chinese Confucian gentleman's home for lunch or something like that. Uh, you're not going to see most of his art because it's packed away in storage. This isn't like in the European houses in which you have a palace and you put everything on display, really ostentatious, in your face. I'm great and my art proves it. Uh, it's a different way of dealing with art in East Asia. Most of the emperor's art was tucked away. And when you have an esteemed guest who you want to impress, maybe give him a gift, then you'll pull it all out of storage and display it for him and have a tea party and all this sort of stuff. And everyone's going to put their red seal on the document and add to it. Uh, but other than that, you're not going to have an opportunity to see what these guys even own. Okay, so with that sort of background, when, where, and how did the 20th century mass exodus begin? Because military looting operations, as, as, as morally uh, reprehensible as they were, there's only two of them. Okay, there's only two of them. And there's only so much art you can get from the Japanese. And let's be honest, people who are bothered today by Chinese art being outside of China, um, the things that they're bothered about probably aren't the things that Japanese elites first bought themselves legitimately and then were in turn sold to Westerners. Very unlikely that's what's you know, raising their blood pressure. Uh, so where do you get more than just these two military looting operations? All right, well, let's get into it. I, ha I have identified three means, three channels of acquisition. We're going to talk about each one of them. Fresh tomb raids, tombs, graves, cemeteries. All right, new, fresh. They have to be new, not fresh. <laughs> fresh is kind of a gross word to use with tombs, right? Uh, new, newly uncovered or dug up tombs. Okay, um... Oracle Bones, the discovery of the Oracle Bones, and the Silk Road. Let's talk about each one of these in turn. First, let's start with, start, talk about the Tomb Raids and the Oracle Bones, because those are easily talked about. Tomb Raids and Oracle Bones take place in the Chinese heartland. Silk Road is going to be way out on the northwestern frontier in Xinjiang and Gansu provinces. Okay? And it's very different terms that those are going to be carried out on. Let's start with tombs. All right? Westerners, after, especially after the Boxer War in 1901... They now really want to get a hold of their own art directly from the source. But Confucian elites in the Qing dynasty in the heartland aren't really all that interested in selling or even giving things as gifts to Westerners. So how are you going to get this stuff? All right, well, we already talked about it. There's the, the, the Japanese channel, but that's, you know, several points removed from the original source. So the way you're going to do it 
is there is a lot of demand and not a lot of supply. Okay? People know this in China. They're aware that Westerners are starting to say, hey, I've got $25,000 that the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York has given me, and I'd like to go find and acquire some stuff. And they go around to the local antiquity shops in the major towns of, the, of uh, Jiangnan, Yangzhou, and you know Shanghai, and these sorts of places, saying, where can I get authentic stuff? And then in turn, these antiquity dealers, these curio shops are saying, I don't have enough supply to fill this new demand. I want some supply because I'd like to make a profit. And then word gets out along many different intermediaries, hey, we need more supply. And the peasants, who are always poor, and have always actually in times of crisis had been trying to dig things up, going and finding old graves and digging them up to see if there's valuables inside, because there are valuables inside. Okay, the graves of wealthy elite people in Chinese history were often val- uh, buried with a lot of valuable art or scrolls and texts. And you could sell these things to Confucian gentlemen in the next town over for a very good price. So now word gets out that we have a new customer who wants stuff. More graves are going to be dug up. There's demand. The supply will materialize. And it does. And so you start getting peasants in you know, very unorganized fashion, uh, knowing that there is an increased market for this, and they're going out and they're digging up graves. Now, digging up graves is a gray area, okay? Officially, it's frowned upon, and it's always been frowned upon uh, by the Chinese state. Heck, it's frowned upon you know, anywhere in the world, most likely. Uh, but specifically in the Chinese context, you are you know, disturbing the bones of someone's ancestors. Obviously, that's horrible. But if it's something that's like 500 years old and you can't identify who the ancestors are and it's not the graveyard of the local great lineage and landlord, um, very likely who's going to raise a fuss, okay? And if you found something pretty exquisite, some bronze cauldron or ritual vessel from the Zhou dynasty, the local landlords, the local Confucian elites are very likely to turn a blind eye to the fact that you've been grave robbing and they're going to say, I want that, (laughs) right? Um, And then if you're not even selling to local Confucian elites, you're selling to middlemen who are eventually connected to the antique shops in Yangzhou and Shanghai or Suzhou or Beijing, um, you're not going to have any problems whatsoever. And so fresh tomb raids will really start to be invigorated in the first decade of the 20th century to help fill this new demand from the Westerners who can't get their art in any feasible means by by other channels. Um, And it continues up to the present day, okay, because there's always been demand that outstrips supply since then. Um, And even today, you read articles, and you know, in the Chinese press, you'll read articles about how some new grave uh, has been discovered somewhere, and you find out, oh, who actually found this? If you trace it back to its source, read the fine print, you'll find out, usually it was a a impoverished peasant somewhere who first stumbled upon it and was trying to sell it to, to supplement his income. Oracle bones. Right, oracle, oh, before we get into Oracle Bones, just so you know, that those fresh tomb raids, that's not exclusively going to Westerners, okay? Everyone's getting a share of that. All right, when this stuff goes to the curio shops in the cities of Beijing and Jiangnan, all right, uh, Chinese are buying them as well. Uh, both Westerners and Chinese are buying them. It's not, it's not monopolized by in any sense by the Westerners. It's simply one of the first means that they're getting their hands on a lot of authentic Chinese artwork, all right, without having to go through Confucian networks or the Japanese or military looting expeditions. Oracle Bones. Oracle Bones is a fun story. And it's also really interesting how they're discovered. The Oracle Bones are discovered in 1899. Perfect timing for this topic. And there's no reason why it had to be discovered in 1899. All right, Oracle Bones, the means of discovery were a means that could have been uh, happened upon accidentally at any point in the last 1,500 years. It's just peasants in, in, in a village near the city of Anyang 
on the northern side of the Yellow River, just after it sort of comes down from its horseshoe bend in the Ordos region and starts heading towards the uh, Gulf, the uh, uh, Pacific Ocean. All right, there's a town along there, Anyang, and then there's little villages around it that are on a, a, a tributary branch of the Yellow River. And after uh, you know torrential rains and flooding, they begin to see these bones that are appearing in the local shoreline. And these things had probably happened before. Okay, people had found bones before in the local uh, dirt, uh, but these peasants uh, start to collect them, and they think of them as dragon bones because there was a tradition of using bones. We're now, you know, they thought of as dragon bones, um, grinding them up and selling them to apothecaries, to medicinal practitioners in the city. And it was seen as something that could be used in various Chinese medicinal potions to improve your health. All right, so it already dragon bones had a use in the Chinese traditional medicine market. Okay, uh, but something strange happens here. These bones are being sold to merchants in the city. Okay, merchants in the city, and we don't actually know exactly, precisely how. Someone first looked at the stuff and said, hey, these aren't just any dragon bones. They look like they have interesting markings on them. All right. There are legendary stories. There's a legendary story about how uh, one scholar uh, in Beijing one day was sick. He had pneumonia or something. He took a trip to the local apothecary and was going to buy some dragon, you know, ground up dragon bones. And then as the bones were going to be ground up, he said, hey, I think it looks like there's Chinese characters on those. <laughs> um, let me take a closer look at that. That's the popular story that you'll hear. And then he identified, holy shit, this looks like it might be Chinese characters, a very early version of it. We actually don't know exactly how this happened. There are various theories. Okay, but at some point, the bones that were being dug up in Anyang were identified. They aroused the suspicions of some scholars and antiquity dealers who had been traveling through the countryside looking for more fresh tombs. And someone got a hold of these. Someone with education got a look at these. And they said, my God. That looks like Chinese script. Now, as you remember, if you cast your mind back to one of the very first episodes in this podcast, um, it's not the Chinese script in any form that most people would recognize today. All right, it's largely unreadable, and it's going to take an insane amount of specialized education and research to be able to read these things. But nonetheless, what emerged is the fact that there were tens of thousands of bone fragments, mostly ox scapula, all right, um, and turtle shells, tortoise shells. Um, that had been used by the kings of the Shang dynasty. And they all date to between 1250 to 1000 AD. And they are the divination practices. They are records of divination with sh- b- b- between the Shang kings and their shamans, their shamans. To ask things like, will my wife's pregnancy be auspicious or not? Answer from the gods, from my ancestors, no, it was a, it was a girl. Well, would it be auspicious to go to battle against the D tribes? Yes, you know, because you'll win. That sort of stuff. And it turns out this is the earliest evidence of Chinese writing we've ever had. All right. Big discovery. Going to blow people's minds away. It's going to take a while before anyone actually truly believes this. But nevertheless, this is huge. This is huge for Chinese scholars. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this is is that they're discovered and identified in 1899. All right, a major new archaeological object. Who owns these things? Who owns them? Interesting question, right? And they go, oh, the Chinese people, China owns it. No, that's not how this works. 
No one at the time would have said this belongs to China, it belongs to the Chinese nation. Uh-uh. See, we're, we're living in a, a world defined by nationalism in which we like to think of all these things in nation terms, the collective heritage of the nation. And we have to be brainwashed to believe that in every single one of our countries. We have to be brainwashed from an early age going to school to believe in this fake abstract thing called the nation and then to believe that there's all this stuff that is our intangible, intangible cultural heritage. Okay, they didn't believe in that crap 100 years ago. Especially not the peasants in Anyang. The peasants in Anyang listened to their landlords and the landlord said, I own this property. That's my farm. I own that land. So anything that's found on it is mine. And I can do whatever the hell I want with it. And they did do whatever the hell they wanted to do with it. They sold it to the highest bidder. And they didn't give a crap about what color skin or what language the bidder spoke. All they cared about was the money. Who's going to pay me the most for this? And so word gets out that there's this spectacular archaeological find in Anyang. And everyone descends like locusts. You have the intermediaries, the middleman, the merchants, the curio dealers from the shops in the major cities saying, get out there and get us some oracle bones. I can sell this stuff for a ton of money. And then you're getting Western missionaries who are already out in the rural areas. And they say, whoa, this could be a major scholarly finding in Chinese history. I'd like to have some oracle bones. And they go up there and they buy a lot. Samuel Cooling and Frank Chalfant, a British and Canadian minister, uh, missionary. Or is it an American and Canadian? I forget. Anyways, they're two missionaries, Western missionaries. They're the first Westerners to go out to Anyang and procure their own collection of oracle bones from the source. So just like with tomb raids, everyone gets their share. Everyone gets some of this. All right. And there's oracle bones all over the world today. There's oracle bones in Japan. There's oracle bones in American universities. There's oracle bones in Chinese collections. All over, because everyone was able to buy them. Okay. All right. So... Tomb, tomb raids and oracle bones were traded on the same principle. A free-for-all to the highest bidder, irrespective of nationality. The Chinese got their fair share of this haul as well. Okay, but once again, the big difference is that the stuff that the Chinese got went into private hands. Private collectors, who then may resell it, may give it to their kids. You know, who knows what they're going to do with it. Whereas the Westerners, the stuff they got usually ended up going into public hands. They would donate it to a university library or a museum in which it's permanent. It's not going to change hands again. That's the big difference once more. Okay. All right. So we're going to talk about the Silk Road in a minute, but sort of to fixate on the heartland here and continue this legacy um, to go a little bit longer before we switch geographical gears. Other than the Silk Road exodus, China does not see a large-scale loss of antiquities until after the 1911 revolution and the political instability that follows that. Okay? It's only after the 1911 revolution that you're going to see um, a widespread effort on the part of local peasants and those middlemen who, you know, those art dealers, those procurers, for the antiquity shops, they're going to start sending people out to go to sites of public, religious, devotional worship. Grottos, caves, in which you have images of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and this sort of thing. And they will start chiseling these things off to make money. Okay, and most of the Westerners will be aware of this. They'll say, oh, it's horrible this is going on. But since it is going on, um, someone needs to buy this stuff and put it in a new museum. And they would have no problem justifying it in their own minds. 
One of the most tragic consequences was for the Longmen Grottoes right outside of Luoyang. Dates back to the Tang Dynasty. Okay, and Westerners valued public religious art as well. The Chinese Confucian elites, they really didn't. They didn't really see the public religious art. That was something that was filled with superstition, that was there to appease the ignorant, dirty masses. Okay, so most of the Confucian elites, they saw, they were aware that public religious art was being uh, denuded, was being taken away and sold to the curio shops in the major cities, and then Westerners were buying that stuff there. And they said, uh, the only concern they really had was, I hope this doesn't lead to a rebellion against among the peasants. Uh, because they themselves didn't feel as if it was a zero-sum game. They didn't care if that stuff left the country because they didn't see Buddhist art as high art. Okay, It wasn't the sort of thing that they coveted. And of course, they didn't have to worry about the peasants being pissed off because the peasants were doing it themselves. They were the, you know, the proximate agents of the removal of this public religious art in most contexts because they were dirt poor and they wanted to make a buck. And they probably had a little conflict in their mind. Hmm, the anger of the gods when I chip off this bodhisattva statue versus not going, not going to eat tonight. Uh, which one am I going to do? And it may have been a moral conflict inside, but ultimately they chose to eat. Okay, uh, it's difficult to identify good guys and bad guys here, okay? When you get down into the nitty-gritty, it's not this simple story of Western imperialism versus Chinese. It's very complex. It's very complex, and everyone is a rational actor. They're, they're, they're basing their decisions on a host of factors, okay? And these are the factors. The other major means was that Qing officials started to lose their jobs, and, you know, usually the wealthiest people were those who had some sort of official position in the government, Okay, and after the 1911 revolution, just, you know, not surprisingly, many Qing officials, most Qing, all Qing officials are unemployed unless they've been able to get a new job under the new republic. And what that means is that they have no salary. We need some money. They got big families, big homes, lots of expenses, and they need money fast. Well, they have a ton of artwork, most of them, and many of them would now begin to sell their artwork. All right, this is the other major uh, channel of uh, exodus of Chinese antiquities after 1911 is that Qing officials start selling it off. All right, so again, this is also one that's hard to find good guys and bad guys. There's no laws in place in China at this time period that says uh, these antiquities can't leave the country. Okay, so the transactions are technically legal and legitimate too. They're, they're, they're seen at the time as private transactions between two consenting parties who are exchanging private wealth, art for money. Um, and this is how many of the Western, major Western museums got their first collections of Chinese art. Uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York was one of the first, given you know, $25,000, $40,000 to its various uh, agents in China. Um, and one of the more famous ac acquisitions was in the first years after 1911, there was a famous Qing Dynasty official, the Manchu official known, known as Duan Fang. Uh, Duan Fang had an exquisite collection of Chinese art. Uh, it was known throughout the land that Duan Fang has the best collection. Uh, Duan Fang, unfortunately, was beheaded by revolutionaries in Sichuan right after the 1911 re revolution. That, 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 that's where he was posted when the, the revolution broke out. His family was in desperate straits afterward, um, and they decided to sell his collection of art in order to survive. And this collection of art was one of the first that ended up in Western museums. Okay. Um, all right. Now, to stress once more the point before we move on, okay, to other topics, the means of removal abroad in these early years, these early decades, the turn of the 20th century, were still by the same means that art had changed hands within China itself for millennia, okay? 
They were private transactions among consenting gentlemen, or they were the result of war. All right? You had nomadic invasions as well. Uh, the Song Dynasty emperor, Emperor Hui Zong, in the 12th century, had a magnificent collection of antiquities. And when his palaces were sacked by the Jurchens, I believe it was, it might have been the Kitan, I think it was the Jurchens sacked his palace, um, they took his, his, his art too. Okay, that had been happening for a long time. All right, war and private transactions. Again, the difference now. China no longer equals the known world. Okay, so the new people who are invading and doing military plundering or buying things on the open market are taking it not just a couple hundred miles or a couple thousand miles, they're taking it 10, 15,000 miles and they're putting it in institutions where it will be permanently placed and you will never get it back again. Okay, and especially after the 1911 revolution, the wealthiest collectors are now Western. Okay, and they're buying stuff up. It's important to note that European museums operated on the exact same principle. You go into any Europe, you pick any any museum, the Louvre, the you know the 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 British Museum, the the Prado, the Hermitage, whatever it might be. Okay, when you go to the Hermitage in Saint Petersburg. Is it art just from Europe? I mean, sorry, is it art just from Russia? No. Is the Louvre art only French artists? Hell no. Even if we're discounting non-Western art for a minute, just the European art, is it all French artists? No. No. Because those museums still operated on the same principle as art collectors in China did. Namely, uh, anyone can buy anyone else's art and put it into their museum. And every single museum in Europe had art from all over Europe. And no one felt the need to apologize and say, uh, we're French, but we have Dutch artists in here. <laughs> is that, that's theft. No, they didn't think of it that way. It was, this is, this is a cosmopolitan, sophisticated gentleman, the acquirer or the museum, who got this stuff. And we put it in here to represent the finest art from around the world. Okay. If a Confucian or Japanese gentleman wanted to acquire European art, could they have done so? You bet they could have. You bet they could have. All right, and a few did, a few did, especially the Japanese, but generally speaking, the Chinese weren't interested at this early date in acquiring European art. But if a Chinese wealthy individual in the year 1905 traveled to Europe and sought out an art dealer or a local duke was invited to tea at his palace and said, wow, that's a magnificent tapestry you have up on your wall. If he truly believed that and then said, would you be willing to, to sell it to me? If the guy was willing, that transaction would have happened. And that tapestry would have been taken back to Beijing. But they weren't interested in that. Okay. Uh, later on in the 20th century, some uh, Chinese elites will become interested in, in, in European art. And they won't have any problems buying up that art and taking it back to East Asia and putting it in their museums. And no one's going to call that theft because it's the same principle that art exchange has always operated on in both directions. All right. Look up this museum. If you're interested, if you don't believe me, look up the Chimei Museum in Chinese Chimei uh, in English, because it's in Taiwan, it's spelled C-H-I-M-E-I, -E the Chimei Museum in the city of Tainan, Taiwan. It's almost all European art. It's a rich Chinese or I think Taiwanese, you know, billionaire kind of guy who had a fancy for European art and went out and acquired it on the open market.
private transactions. And now it's in Taiwan. Glorious European art in Taiwan. Most people are shocked when they see the existence of a museum like this. Whoa! You mean this happened too? It went both ways? Yeah, it did. Obviously, it's heavily weighted towards one direction because the Westerners have all the money and they're the ones going to China. Um, but it didn't mean that it couldn't go both ways if they wanted it to. Okay. All right. Now, um, let's see here. Let's talk about what happened to the Forbidden City. Okay. The Forbidden City. Because after 1911, big things happened there as well. Now the Forbidden City is, you know, one of the largest art museums, essentially, in China. Um, and the whole complex is seen as a museum of sorts. Um, what happens after 1911? Well, what happens is that the Qing emperors have abdicated. All right, the Qing emperors have abdicated after 1911. Where are they going to go? Remember that boy emperor, Pui? Put on the throne at age three, abdicates at age six. What are you going to do with him? Are you going to kick him out? No. Yuan Shikai, remember him, the military general? He negotiated fairly favorable articles of abdication for the Manchu ruling house. And as part of those articles of abdication, they received permission for the Manchu imperial family that lived within the Forbidden City to stay there and continue to receive subsidies from the new Republican government for an indefinite period of time. And they lived in the Forbidden City. Now, what happens over the course of the next 10 years for the people living in the Forbidden City really helps us understand conceptions of ownership in the art market at the time period. Okay? Pui fully, and his, his brothers, his family, the eunuchs that were around him, they fully believed that everything in the Forbidden City belonged to them. It was their private property. Okay? They didn't say, oh, this is the collective intangible cultural heritage of the Chinese nation. They didn't think in terms of Chinese nation. Absolutely not. He thought, as Confucian elites had always thought, this is my private property. It reflects my private virtue. It reflects the virtue of my family, who was great enough to acquire this stuff. The art both confirms and reflects the glory and virtue of our family. That's how art was regarded. All right? That's why every Confucian gentleman has to have his own art collection. And when his friends come over, he takes it out of storage, unfurls it, and they all sit around and they have calligraphy tea parties in which they go, ooh, look at that. This is Tang Dynasty calligrapher so-and-so. Look at the downward stroke, the upward stroke. Beautiful. Uh, you want to write a little notation of your assessment of this calligraphy at the end of the scroll, right on the scroll? Go ahead, be my guest. I own this manuscript. It's me. It's a reflection of my identity as a cultured gentleman. And I can do whatever I want with it. And this is what I want to do with it to prove to you that I'm a cultured gentleman. All right. And then when he dies and his son falls on hard economic times, he might sell that scroll. And it's his right to do so. He turns it into economic capital, whereas previously it might have been a form of social capital. Or if you gave that as a gift to your superior, it's a form of political capital. Puyi is living in this mindset. And he says, hey, I'm the inheritor of the Azingyoro dynasty. Everything here is mine. It reflects the accumulated virtue of my imperial ancestors. Therefore, when he falls on hard economic times and the subsidies from the new Republican government don't come in as fast and as plentiful as he thought they should, he said, I'm going to turn some of my stuff into economic capital and we're going to sell it. And I have every right to do so because this belongs to my family and I've inherited my family's wealth. And that's exactly what he did. Pui, his brother Pujie, and many of the eunuchs for the next 10 years and longer, actually, um, will methodically and stealthily uh, take stuff out of the palace and sell it to uh, uh, antique shops in Beijing. 
And this stuff will end up getting onto the open market, and many people throughout East Asia and the world will acquire stuff from the Forbidden City. Okay? And it's only later, three or four years later, that people in the Republican government are starting to subscribe to this new idea of nationalism and saying, whoa, 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 we need a, a national museum. We need an institution that represents the nation in cultural terms. Or else we're not going to be able to convince people that there is such a thing called the Chinese nation if we don't have the institutions to back it up. And they say, the Forbidden City, we need to nationalize this. It's no longer the private property of the Azinguro ruling house. It belongs to the Chinese nation. All right, these are two competing ideas. And so the new government starts to pass antiquities legislation, saying that it's now going to be a crime to export antiquities from the country. And they'll try to delineate between the private articles of daily use for the Manchu, Azinguro family living in the Forbidden City, what they're allowed to regard as their own. And then they'll say, that's one thing, but there's a lot of things in the Forbidden City that we now say are intangible cultural heritage of the Chinese nation, writ large. Every single peasant, every single person in the country, it belongs to them. That's a radically new idea. And Pui is not having any of it. And they continue to sell this stuff in full belief that this is ours for the next 10 years. Okay? Um, you don't have museums in China yet. Okay, the first museums in China were all founded by foreigners. You had a, uh, a museum founded um, in Macau, you know, I think the 1830s. You had other missionary foreign-run museums in Shanghai in the 19th century. And then eventually you get your first attempt at a Chinese museum by the late Qing Dynasty reformer Zhang Jian. He will set up what is known as the Nantong Museum outside of Shanghai in 1905. But even then, it's seen as a private museum in which you have to apply for permission to get access to the museum. Not a national museum. Okay, And until you have a national museum, it's tough to sort of enforce the idea that this belongs to all of us permanently, and you put your stuff in museums. You don't sell them privately on the open art market. That's what the Westerners do, right? They have permanent institutions that represent our entire nation or our empire. And now the Chinese are saying, we need those institutions as well. Until you have those institutions and the educational discourse that goes with it and that you try to inculcate in your subjects when they go to school and in the media, until you have that, the default position on art and antiquities is that they belong to he who bought it or he who found it or he who received it as a gift from his good friend. And that person can do whatever the hell he wants to do with it. That was the default position. And now we're finally starting to see a transition, and the transition is best exemplified in the forbate, in, in the forbate, in the fate of the forbidden city. I like that one, forbate, a combination of fate and forbidden. In the fate of the forbidden city. Okay? And not surprisingly then, Pui will be kicked out of the forbidden city in 1924. After 12 long years after the revolution, he's been there doing this stuff. And when you have the warlord Feng Yuxiang, who's trying to cultivate a populist identity as a defender of the Chinese nation, trying to transcend his warlord status and say, I am the uniter of the Chinese nation. What, what sort of a political move, what sort of spectacle can I do in the public sphere to convince people that I'm different and that I'm a true patriot of the Chinese nation? Well, I can kick out Pui from the Forbidden City and nationalize the Forbidden City and turn it into the museum. And that's exactly what he does. Pui's kicked out in 1924, 1925. The National Palace Museum finally opens its doors for the first time. And then everyone in the country can go visit the Forbidden City for the first time ever without getting their head cut off. 
All right. That's how you convince the people of a new nationalist ideology that didn't exist one generation prior. And then people are on board with it. Oh yeah, this belongs to me. Even though you had <laughs> even though it was previously regarded as the private property of the wealthiest and most powerful people in the land, and you would have had your head cut off if you ever tried to see this stuff in the old days, now you're being told it's yours. And once you start to cultivate that sentiment, that's nationalism, and that's powerful. And then you begin to believe that if anyone takes this stuff outside the current political borders of my country, it's theft. It's theft. And this is the transition point. It's the teens and it's the 20s. That's when you get the first museums, the institution of the museum in China, and the nationalist consciousness towards art and antiquities that goes along with it. We need a new identity for the nation. And it's going to be the art that we see in our museums. Okay? And that begins in the 1920s. And that is when you start to see the moral discourse of, of, of appropriation, of disapproval that accrues to Western acquisitions by any means of Chinese antiquities. Okay? The fate of the National Palace Museum itself, you can do a whole episode on this. It's absolutely fascinating. It opens its doors in 1925. Um, Chiang Kai-shek's government comes to power in uh, Nanjing in 1927. And over the next couple of years, they start coming up with ideas to bring some of the uh, treasures from the Forbidden City down to Nanjing, because that's going to be the new capital now. We need to have another museum down here that showcases most of the stuff in the Forbidden City. Um, and then the Japanese invasion of China in the 1930s, first Manchukuo 1932 and then 1937, the actual war, uh, uh, convinces Chiang Kai-shek, oh, I've got a great pretext now to move everything down to the south. And he starts moving, you know, thousands of crates of art and antiquities from the Forbidden City down to Nanjing. Puts them in storage, I think, first in Shanghai, and then eventually they're in Nanjing. And I think it's sometime 1935 or 36, they're ready to open the, the new museum in Nanjing. Um, and then the war breaks out, and they have to put everything in storage again. And then get this, for the next 12 years, tens of thousands of art and antiquities from the Forbidden City in crates travel inland in three different routes to inland China to go to caves in Guizhou and Sichuan provinces where the wartime uh, capital and various institutions will be located. And they put these things in caves so that they can't be destroyed. Okay. And then after the war is over, they'll bring it back to Nanjing. Then the civil war breaks out and they say, we're not giving this stuff up. Okay. We're taking it with us to Taiwan. And when the nationalists retreat to Taiwan, they take their antiquities with them to Taiwan. Not only that, they build another National Palace Museum in the similar architectural style as the Forbidden City. It's a different color, only white and uh, blue and whatnot, um, but it's the same sort of architecture. And so you, you won't believe this if you're not familiar with it. There are actually two National Palace Museums today. There's the Forbidden City, and then there is the, the, the National Palace Museum in Taiwan, in Taipei that has all of these antiquities. Many people think that what's in Taiwan is the cream of the crop and they have the better stuff. Um, but regardless, there are two palace museums, and both of them are now seen as political emblems of, le of, the, le of the legitimacy of the government that is the steward of these artifacts, because they've been nationalized. That's why they're seen as so important. You don't have the right to rule the Chinese people if you can't safeguard the cultural heritage of the Chinese people that lends substance to the I their identity as the Chinese people. All right, this is when you get the sense that when something leaves our country, it is the lost treasure of China, not the lost treasure of individual Confucian gentlemen's private property. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, because that's what it previously was. It wasn't the lost treasures of China. It was the lost treasures of private uh, Confucian uh, gentlemen. All right. Now with this shift and the, and the creation of museums, it is indeed seen as the lost treasures of China. And anyone who says otherwise is a thief. All right. The only other thing we really need to talk about before we get to the major obstruction is we talk about the Silk Road. Okay. The Silk Road, as I said before, these are the antiquities that are going to be found in, in distant far northwestern China. Okay. And it's going to be aided by the fact that most of the people who live out there are Muslims. Turkic-speaking Muslims, today's Uyghurs or Kazakhs, okay? And these people, unlike the Chinese, will have a perception of cultural discontinuity, not continuity. They will look at the stuff that is buried in the sands of the desert, the Taklamakan Desert, and they will say, I don't identify with this. This isn't my culture, okay? And therefore, when the Westerners come in and they say, I'd like to buy this, they say, yeah, sure. I'd be thrilled to have some money for this. This, mean, this means nothing to me. Okay, whereas in China, they had stiff competition in those early years, right? Because the, the locals did value it. Why are the Westerners, and eventually the Japanese, why do they come to do expeditions in Xinjiang? These are true expeditions, all right? Archaeological expeditions, in which you have a caravan, camels, and you go hundreds of miles over a couple years, oftentimes. Sometimes thousands of miles over a couple years, going from oasis to oasis, striking out into the desert, finding new sites of abandoned towns from 2,000 years ago, and then digging to see what sort of stuff you can find. Why do they come? Because the Europeans in the late last decades of the 20th century begin to learn that there is this thing called Gandharan art and Indo-European scripts that are being found in Xinjiang. Gandharan art is the mix of uh, 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 artistic motifs that occurred in the wake of the conquest of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC. Alexander the Great, the, the, the Greek, or more specifically the Macedonian king, uh, goes all the way through the Middle East, through Persia, um, and finishes his conquest in what is today present-day Afghanistan and Pakistan and northwestern India. All right, The communities he leaves behind, the soldiers he leaves behind, mix with the locals, and they create this hybrid art that's usually referred to as Gandharan art, in which oftentimes the subject will be Buddhist. It's a Buddhist subject, but it's expressed in a Hellenistic Greek style with statues um, that look very similar to statues you would find in Athens today or in any museum, any Western museum that has Greek antiquities. Okay, So not only did they see evidence of Greek influence, and they said, hey, that's us. We identify with that. That's our perception of cultural continuity. Okay. Uh, they also found evidence that there were uh, birch bark manuscripts and leather manuscripts and wooden tablets that had evidence of scripts that were related to Sanskrit. Sanskrit, an Indian language, an Indo-European language. So uh, when they start finding these things emerging from the sands of the desert, oftentimes they're being found by local you know, peasants or shepherds, Uyghur peasants and shepherds who are looking to make an extra buck and they're trying to find gold. They're trying to find gold in the ancient abandoned cities of the desert. Uh, they stumble upon some of these things. They often think they're worthless, but they then come to the attention sometimes of the British and the Russian consul who are in the city of Kashgar. And they start saying, whoa, hold your horses. We've got evidence of Western civilization in northwestern China. Alexander the Great's cultural synthesis, this Gandharan art in the Indo-European languages, didn't end. It didn't end in Afghanistan and Pakistan. It ended in the Taklamakan Desert of what is now China, northwestern China. Well, then it was the Qing Dynasty. It wasn't really China, actually. And so they start to say, we need to send expeditions out there. And this is when you get the Silk Road expeditions that go out to the deserts of northwestern China, and they go way into the desert, 
and they uncover incredible evidence of languages that are no longer spoken today, dead languages. And these languages sometimes they'll discover are closely related to Celtic. Celtic! Incredible! All right, they're Indo-European languages. And of course, the Westerners see themselves in this. They say, oh, this is our ancestors to one degree or another. And then they find Gandharan art, sculptures and statues and artistic motifs on pillars that look like they came right out of Greece, except for the Buddhist motifs. And they're stunned at this stuff. They're stunned. Who are these people? The Swedish explorer Sven Hedin. The Hungarian-born British archaeologist Oral Stein. The French sinologist Paul Paleo. The German Indologist uh, Albert von Lecoq and Albert Grunvedel. The Japanese Buddhist Count Otani. Because the Japanese also will be interested in this period. A lot of this stuff will come will will date back to the Tang Dynasty. And remember, the Tang Dynasty is when you had the cultural exportation of Huaxia civilization to Japan. And so they actually come out here and say, wow, this is stuff that has a direct bearing on our cultural history as well. Okay? And so the, the Silk Road uh, expeditions will represent, even before the 1911 revolution, it's actually the first exodus of art from the boundaries of China. You wouldn't necessarily say it's the exodus of Chinese art, because a lot of it is stuff that's wholly outside of a Chinese cultural tradition. I mean, Indo-European languages, Gandharan art, all this sort of stuff. And the local Chinese officials who were stationed there, they actually didn't have much interest in this stuff either. They said, hmm, interesting. Very interesting. And they didn't really care that the Westerners were removing this stuff because they had a, a perception of cultural discontinuity with it. Where did the tensions begin? It began in Dunhuang. Dunhuang, a town, an oasis town at the very northwestern tip of Gansu province. Gansu province is this Italian boot-shaped, maybe like a barbell-shaped province um, that is the, the, the historical corridor through which you pass uh, to get to Xinjiang, to get to the northwestern deserts. Okay, and Dunhuang, this is a major oasis town along the Silk Road. At Dunhuang, you have the Thousand Buddha Caves, uh, Buddhist caves cut into the uh, 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 cliffside of a desert oasis. And in these caves, their uh, local elites would pay to have Buddhist motifs painted all around the caves as a sign of their devotion to get Buddhist merit for the afterlife. Okay, uh, Oral Stein, in the year 1907, is the first Westerner to say, I've heard rumors of a hidden cave library at the Thousand Buddha Caves near Dunhuang uh, that was recently discovered by a Taoist priest. He broke through the wall of one of these caves and found another little cave, and inside were all these manuscripts. And he says, I want to go see if this is true, because if it's true, if these rumors are true, we need to get a hold of these manuscripts and deposit them in libraries and among scholars who can study them. So in 1907, he goes there. What really happened? Yes, in the year 1900, just one year after the oracle bones were discovered. Abbot Wang, Wang Yuan Lu, a Taoist priest, an itinerant, vagrant Taoist priest, extremely poor, originally from inner China, had joined the military before, been a soldier, sort of this guy who wanders around aimlessly. He eventually converts to Taoism, stumbles upon the Dunhuang Caves, the Thousand Buddha Caves, finds them abandoned largely and in need of much repairs. And he says, I'm going to um, uh, gain merit for the afterlife by restoring these caves and restoring them back to their former glory. And he goes into town and he begs for his money. He begs for donations to restore the caves, clean them out of sand, repaint some of the murals, 
on the walls. And one day in the year 1900, as he's clearing out sand, he noticed a crack in the plaster near the uh, uh, the point where the ceiling meets the wall in Cave 16. It wasn't called Cave 16 then, but it is now. And he starts to break through it, thinking there must be something behind there. He opens up the plaster, and he finds Cave 17. And what's in Cave 17? This little niche cave to the side. Over 40,000. You heard me right. 40,000 manuscripts and other religious banners, um, guidebooks, uh, phrase books. Uh, there's one Hebrew prayer in there. There's all kinds of stuff. The one most thing, incredible archaeological finds in the history of the world. Heck, universe. <laughs> I'm going to be bold and say it's the most incredible archaeological find in the history of the universe. All right, King Tut. King Tut, the discovery of King Tut's tomb in 1922 is pretty fabulous, and it's got all the gold and, you know, the stuff that is great for the cameras. But as far as pure historical knowledge that can be gained by an archaeological find, nothing is superior to Cave 17, the hidden cave library at Dunhuang. And it was discovered not by an archaeologist, but by an illiterate Taoist priest. Okay? How is he going to view these things? Because he can't read them. He doesn't know how valuable they are. Only He only knows that they're old. He's going to try to sell them. He's going to try to turn them into economic capital so he can restore the caves. Abbot Wong has a, gets a lot of opprobrium. He gets a lot of vilification, especially from the Chinese today. Um, you have to remember. Okay, you have to remember. He was trying to sell these things to raise money to restore the caves. He couldn't read them. So to him, they had no historical value. They had value. They had spiritual value. If he could transform them into economic capital, he could use that economic capital to restore the caves, a, 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 a pious act of merit. And to the end of his days, Abbot Wong was as poor as hell. He wore rags um, and he didn't spend a single dime on any worldly pleasures whatsoever. He begged for his, for his money, for his food. And when he sees these things, he first decides in the first seven years before Stein shows up, he says, I'm going to send these as gifts to local Chinese officials and see if they'll give me donations for them so I can restore the caves. And he sends gifts to many different Chinese officials and none of them send him a dime. None of them send him a, uh, send him a dime. And meanwhile, men like Stein and Paul Paleo are in Xinjiang and they're starting to see more and more rumors, starting to hear more and more rumors about these manuscripts because Abbot Wang, Wang Yanlu, has been gifting them. He's been giving them to local Chinese officials who then uh, exchange them in turn. They give them as gifts to their superiors. Remember, it's private capital. It's not seen as the collective heritage of the Chinese nation. I can do whatever the hell I want with it. And what I want to do with it is give it as a gift to my superior to ingratiate myself with him. And Stein and Paleo in 1907 and 1908, that's when they do their two expeditions, they see these manuscripts. The Chinese officials in Xinjiang show them to them. And so Stein goes there and he convinces Wang Yuanlu to sell him 10,000 manuscripts for what at the time obviously is seen as a piddling sum. To Abbot Wang, it was an enormous amount of money. And he used all the money on restorations of the caves. Paul Paleo shows up the next year, gets another 10,000 manuscripts for a higher price. And then word gets out among the Westerners, and all the Westerners and the Japanese Count Otani Kozui uh, also show up, and they start buying them as well, and Wong is happy to sell it to every single person. Okay, now, what's the issue with this? Um, whereas most of the stuff that was found in Xinjiang along the Taklamakan Desert, uh, the stuff that Abbot Wong sold from Dunhuang, because Dunhuang straddles the two worlds of Central Asia and China, it's right on the precipice, um, he, there, the, lots of those manuscripts are in Chinese. There's a hell of a lot of stuff in uh, Indian languages, in Central Asian languages, um, but there's also a lot of stuff in Chinese as well. 
okay? And when the Westerners start acquiring the Chinese stuff, this is when the jealousy and the anger of some Chinese scholars and officials begins to show up. Um, and it's Paul Paleo who uh, first alerts Chinese in Beijing and in Shanghai um, that to the existence of these manuscripts um, in 1908, uh, late 1908, 1909. And that's when they go in and they try to get their own share as well. So the Dunhuang manuscripts are all over the world today. All right, they're all over the world today. And it's, it's one of those issues that is a very controversial, touchy, touchy thing to talk about. Okay, because there are inflamed opinions, uh, very strongly held positions all around. Um, I hope that I just can give you some sense of the original context and, and uh, political and economic mentalities that all the various parties uh, had subscribed to at the time that this cave was found. Um, and all I can really say is that eventually the cave at Dunhuang, the secret cave at Dunhuang, will be a flashpoint for arguments over uh, Western theft. I can tell you that at the time they were actually removed in 1907 and 1908 initially by Oral Stein and Paul Paleo, um, no one in China, even when they found out about this stuff, was calling them a thief. All right, They were annoyed, they weren't happy that these things were taken abroad, um, but no one at the time, anywhere in China, um, ever said at the time that they were taken that this is immoral, that it was illegal or that it was theft, because they're working in a different mindset. They have a different mindset at this time. They don't subscribe to the nation. They, described, they, they, they subscribe to individual loyalty to the emperor, not to the Chinese nation. Okay, And they don't have museums, so they're not saying this, this belongs in a cultural institution that represents the entire Chinese people. Uh, it belongs to individuals who acquire them, and it's an embodiment of their virtue. All right. Now this will change. This will change in the 1920s. In the 1920s, after you've had the revolution, after you've had World War One, and the Westerners seem to be a little more weak, you have an impulse among many Chinese intellectuals, a new generation that is now largely Westernized. They've been educated in, in, in a Western mode, either in Japanese uh, Westernized institutions or uh, actually in Western universities. All right. But they're thinking in Western terms now about nations and museums, and they create their own museums. By the 1920s, you've got your museum, the Forbidden City, okay? Um, and you've got your first generation of fully westernized Chinese scholars who are working as professors in Beijing University. And they're the first ones who are going to say, we need a new identity um, for our new state, for our new nation. And these are the sort of things that can serve that purpose, the, the art and antiquities of China. We're not viewing them anymore as the personal playthings of the elite. They now are the collective heritage of all of this. And what you're going to get in the middle of the 1920s, the first obstruction of Westerners who are trying to take Chinese art out of the country will occur uh, towards new archaeologists from the West who are trying to undertake new Silk Road archaeological expeditions in the years after World War I has ended. Okay. Uh, it's going to begin with Harvard art historian Langdon Warner in 1925. It'll uh, gain steam when the Swedish explorer Sven Hedin comes back in 1927. Um, it'll get very acrimonious when the American paleontologist Roy Chapman Andrews from the American Museum of Natural History in New York, when he returns for another expedition in 1928 and 29. And then it will reach a climax when Oral Stein comes back for his fourth and final expedition to Xinjiang in 1930. And each time 
you're going to see the growth of a new institution, a new committee known as the Commission for the Preservation of Antiquities. All right, the Commission for the Preservation of Antiquities will be a coalition of westernized, you know, western-educated Chinese scholars working as professors in Beijing University and other Beijing institutions who are, for the first time, subscribing to the entirely westernized view that this stuff is the collective heritage of the entire nation. And as such, it cannot be privately changing hands anymore. The irony here is that the Westerners are the ones who sort of imparted that view to the Chinese, and now they're also the ones who are trying to take the stuff away, and they're going to have their own medicine being given back to them. Their own nationalist ideology is now being shot right back at them. And by the time Orlstein comes back for his last expedition in 1930, you have your first fully successful obstruction of Western archaeological expeditions. All right, so the Western archaeological expeditions to the Silk Road will be over by 1930. Okay, um, the domestic art market, this sort of, you know, tomb raids, public religious art and whatnot, that's not going to be obstructed for a, a, a lot longer, not until after 1949. Because that's, that's much more difficult. The foreign expeditions, you know, a real true expedition, um, those are publicly visible. You know, they're, they're sort of, you know, major public events. They're easy to identify, and they're easy to obstruct. Uh, but the domestic art market is going to be much, much tougher. It's only when you are able to uh, uh, um, uh, get rid of the conditions of political instability and widespread poverty that you're going to be able to stop all these different actors who are uncovering new tombs um, and selling them to middlemen, uh, going to the Longman grottos, breaking off statues and selling them to middlemen. That's going to go on all the way until 1949. Okay, but what we can say, what we can say is that by the end of the 1920s, at the, roughly coinciding with the rise of the Nationalist Party and Chiang Kai-shek, okay, by the end of the 1920s, foreigners are no longer removing artifacts from China in great numbers. All right, the expeditions are fully obstructed. And the only things that are still going on is that black market, which is technically illegal, by the way, now. It wasn't illegal in the old days. It is illegal now. There is legislation, but that legislation can't be enforced. So one way or the other, the movement, the ownership, the movement of Chinese antiquities, by the end of the 1920s, it's largely an internal Chinese affair, where it had not been an internal Chinese affair for some time, for the, at least the previous three decades. All right, so as you can tell from our today's topic, this is a really complicated topic, okay? Uh, like I said, it's hard to find good guys and bad guys. There's a lot of gray areas. There's a lot of complex things you got to take into account, and you really got to recover the original perspectives and motivations of everyone who's involved. Um, now, I've done a lot of research on this. It's one of my major research areas. If you're interested in this, I've got a lot of other materials. You can visit my website, indianajonesandhistory.com. Sorry for, the, pl for, for the, the shameless plug. I feel dirty even suggesting that. Uh, but everything's free. I'm not trying to get any money out of you whatsoever. I have a 21-episode documentary on YouTube, Indiana Jones and History, um, that you can watch for free, in which I cover the entire world, the history of this sort of stuff. And I have five episodes um, in China. And I also have a five-episode uh, podcast, five podcast series other than Beyond Hua Xia called Indiana Jones and History, in which I talk about this stuff in depth as well. Um, it's truly a topic in which there's so much you can talk about. That's why I've got so many different venues in which I have been talking about it. All right. Now, next time, we're getting back to our political narrative. The big political events that you need to know about for the 20th century. We're going to get into the 1920s, the great epic battle for the heartland of modern China. 
in Nationalists versus Communists in episode 33 of Beyond Huasia.